Hillfields, housing, young mums, and hunting in the woods. When I moved here, I had two children. I was 21 years old. I had a little girl and a little boy, and I had never had a garden. I moved into my house and I thought all my Christmases had come together. I couldn't believe that I had a house, a real house with a real garden for my children. The, the feeling of gratitude that I had for that is hard to describe. What was so pioneering about Hillfields it being the first council estate in Bristol, it's really special to represent an area that the rest of the country came to look at, and that's really special to sort of have that historical link here. But we do very much want it to be about going forward and you know what we can do for housing in the future. There is nothing there to value when there's very little there. People would pass the park, they'd drop litter and rubbish and it would gather underneath the hedges and things like that. And we picked up tons of rubbish. At the end of the day, if you've got something you can actually see that you've done, it's something that you might not want to brag about or anything like that, but you get the benefits of seeing other people enjoying it. You're listening to Hillfields 100. My name's Bruce Guthrie, and you've just heard Jan, Anna and Terry talking about what Hillfields means to them. Across the city, Sea Mills and Knoll West are also celebrating, but here at the Minerva Primary School, the children are finding out just why their estate is extra important. So I'm Anna and I'm a governor at the school at Minerva. I'm also the local councillor for Hillfields. And I'm a primary school teacher in my other day job. It's fantastic. We're with a group of year one children. So they are six and seven and they are all making houses to looking like the local houses in Hillfields. And I've just heard one of the boys say, this looks like my house. And he's pointed at where his house is, which is very close to the school just down the road. How are they going to fit in this house? Housing is something that we talk about ever such a lot and the, the lack of housing in Bristol and um, it's a massive challenge for us. It just seemed really apt to have a big kind of city-wide celebration of the 100 years since the Addison Act that brought these houses online. Hillfields was designed as a garden suburb. Solid brick-built houses with gardens set in leafy avenues and what for many years was just a large grassy field called the Wreck. Terry King from Fishponds Locality Action Group remembers what it was like when he moved here in the 1970s. One group of youngsters broke into a neighbour's hut and stole a chainsaw, went down the park and sawed down one of the big trees. I don't mean a small tree, I mean like a 50-foot high tree. So it was, it was quite serious. Walking round the park, you can see that now it's loved and well used, and it's taken a wily and persistent group nearly 20 years to realise their vision. From what Terry's been telling me, they've built a BMX track, a multi-use games area, as well as a children's playground. They even built their own nursery. Over at Hillfields Library, the school children's model houses are now on display, and local residents Janet and Bob recall their childhoods in wartime Bristol. 
I've always liked the estate because it was where we were brought up as children and that feeling has never left me, actually. Although we were really poor, we didn't feel left out of anything. Well, I came up here in 1943. I was seven and the factory obviously got bombed and our house got damaged, so we were lucky and were given a house in Frampton Crescent. We felt we were in heaven almost because we had a garden at the front of the house, a garden at the back. It was absolutely lovely because we had a bathroom, but the toilet was in the porch, but that was better than what we had before. Oh, about eight, I suppose. I remember there was, at the end of Gorse Hill, there used to be an apple orchard and a great big concrete tree. So we used to go apple scrubbing and then throw stones or whatever we could find and get the concrete down. We got caught by the local policeman, but we still done it. <laughs> I know you, I know your mum and dad, I'll be around later. The boys had done a runner because we used to say, RBCC, and that meant, run boys, copper coming. Oh dear, I thought that's it then. I got banned from going out for the rest of the day. But the estate has changed a lot. Well, there's a lot of young mums or single mums, you know, bringing up children that are really finding it difficult to get anywhere to live. We've got a lot on the estate that are single parents and elderly people. And, you know, they've got to be somewhere where they feel safe. And with Janet's thoughts in mind, I'm meeting two women who've made a lasting contribution to the life of the estate. They first met at school camp when they were 11, and they've been <laughs> friends ever since. Yeah. We got on a bus once and asked the bus driver, how far can we go for 50p? And so we just stayed on the bus until he told us to get off. We had no idea where we were, none. <laughs> and so I think we um, ate people's raspberries out of the garden. Yeah, and then, yeah. And stole the milk off the doorstep and all Some kinds of naughty, really naughty stuff. My name is George Campbell Toure. So my name is Jan Ross. So what I realised... I suppose, even when I was at that age, that I can imagine the kind of mischief we could get up to together, and, and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> I think the careers that we both went into eventually as well were very, very serious, pressured mm. and stressful careers. Um, I went off, I did uh, my nurse training, became a nurse, and then George went off and became a social worker. It was a joy to stay up until the early hours of the morning yeah. talking and drinking tea and... And, and and laughing, and laugh, crying yeah. sometimes. Actually, being a formidable force is directly as a result of being a young parent because you have to be tough. For me personally, there's a strength that I can trace all the way back to being a young teenager and having to fight for everything. And I can trace that now, right as I'm sat here. You both have the experience of being young mothers and you talk about sort of how hard that was, particularly about the shame of yeah. it easily bestowed upon you. All that contributes to somebody feeling something negative and it's all on the basis you were a young man. Hmm. That's always going to be bits of grit in something that you've been judged. Pearls come out of bits of grit though. <laughs> yeah, nice one. But you're also trying to work out who you are in the grand scheme of things. So you're still a child because you're treated like a child and yet you're expected to act like an adult. And I never forgot, I had a knock on the door and as I opened up the door, this man stood there with his official documents and said to me, oh, can I speak to your dad? And I thought, 
what do you want to speak to my dad for? He's a know-all. But again, he couldn't possibly believe that I was, you know, the tenant. I was living with my baby's father and married at 16. But whilst I was trying to work out who I was and who I was in relationship to my child, I was living with a person I hardly knew who was 19 years old. And if you look outside now, I'm horrified to think when I see some 16 and 19 year olds squabbling over things. When I look back, I had enough to deal with without being judged by the whole entire world and its dog. So in the work that you did, the Young Mums group was 15 years. When you did some tutoring actually in this building. In this room. In this room. And you worked with young mums and young mums were saying to you, we want some things to do, Jan. How do we become a young mum? Mm. I think Jan's words was, well, I don't know. Let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. We had really meaningful conversations about prejudice and about um, how we scapegoat different people in our society. And then I, we turned it round and started talking about them. So what is true about you then? Are you, are you a waste of time? Are you promiscuous? Is this true about you? If that's not true about you, then what else is not true out there? Did you get pregnant to get a council house? Just <laughs> yeah. <to> pay for <laughs> <it> yeah. <one>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you get pregnant to get benefits? Jim Slip, Jim mums. Slip mums is what we were in the 70s. Yeah. So that, that was the label in the 70s. So we've been talking about the end of that group. But during this process, the building and... Uh, the policies within Bristol City Council were changing and this building was offered to us and we said, no. No, thank you. <laughs> no, we don't want it. No. It's a community liability. Everything's falling apart on it. There's no money to go with it. No. And after several times of saying no, mm -hmm. our fear was if they board this building up... There's nothing else. This was the only building in the area... And it felt like an injustice to my area, the area where I had raised my children and had lived all these years. So we seriously talked about what we were going to do as a team with the Board of Trustees of Hillfield Young Mothers Group. And the chair at the time was a very courageous young woman who <laughs> basically said, yeah, just do it, do it. <laughs> um, and so we did. We took on the building. That wasn't an easy process. It wasn't an easy process, In no. In fact, I think we were seen very much by some as two dithery old women. <laughs> they don't know us very who, well. <laughs> who, who lacked in, you know, I think from some in Bristol City Council. And I remember when you sat at a table and one senior officer said, what you need to do is get yourself a notebook. Now, Jan's been doing finances and fundraising and a funded for a phenomenal amount of money. What you need to do, lovey. <laughs> we weren't building managers. No. We'd never managed a building. We made it up as we were going along and still make it up as we go along, actually. As you know, there are plans to build six houses and four flats on the ground next to the, the community hub building here. I've never built houses before. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think, I haven't built houses. <laughs> And I'm like that mischievous child again. And my only ask for the amount of effort and time and input is I want to name the road. That's my only... That's I don't, what she wants. That's what I want out of it. Yeah. It's not even after you, is it? No, not even after me, no. <laughs> my house I live in at the moment was built on an orchard and still has one of the original apple trees in the garden. So I just want to call it Apple Tree Walk. 
May you get your wish. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a big chance of that? Yes, there is. I've worked out how to do it. (laughs) So we've come full circle. Ten more houses that people can call home. My thanks go to Pete Insull and Ruth Myers from Local Learning, to Councillor Anna Keane, to the children and staff at the Minerva Primary Academy, to Terry King from Fishponds Locality Action Group, and to Jan Ross and George Campbell-Touré at Hillfields Family and Community Trust. If you'd like to find out more about the events marking Hillfields 100, then visit locallearning.org.uk. Now, I have no idea why Hillfields is called Hillfields. Maybe there was a field with a hill in it. I don't know. It also goes by the name of Fish Ponds Park, but hardly anyone would use that. And obviously, it's called that because the neighboring area is called Fish Ponds, obviously. So I'm, yeah, I'm Steve Hunt. So I've been part of the Bristol Radical History Group probably since about 2010. The group's been going a little bit longer than that, been going since probably about 2006, I believe. In that time, it's put on literally majority of talks, but uh, quite a few guided walks. We've, we've done reenactments of, of various historical events. Um, probably one of the big things that we do is we've almost become a small publisher in our own right now. So we produce something called the Radical Pamphleteer, moving on to book length publications now. And uh, so tell us about this particular book, about garden suburbs and which parts of Bristol are, are included. Bristol was uh, in, in quite extensive influence in terms of garden suburbs. So the Hillfields one is interesting because Hillfields was... The, most, the earliest garden suburb in Bristol, and also probably the most, the most extensive as well. So I think the present population of Hillfields is something like 13,000, which I, I find that quite interesting, actually, because I'm, I'm from, a, little, well, I'm from uh, a market town called Devizes, not, not so far away, and I think the population of Devizes is about 11,000, so that's my benchmark for, for small settlements, and, and to think that that, uh, that estate is bigger than my town is quite impressive, actually, isn't it? What was the idea of the garden suburb? Suburbs and suburbia, we often think of that in terms of, I don't know, London suburbs where you, you live out in a leafy avenue somewhere and you, you get on the bus or train or you commute in and you work somewhere else. So essentially, almost like dormitory towns. In terms of the garden cities and the garden suburbs, it was almost the opposite of that. So the, 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 um, the, the main thinker behind garden suburbs, Ebenezer Howard, had an idea of, of garden cities is combining the very best features of the town and the countryside in one place. So that was one of, that's one of the important things about them. The other thing that sort of would distinguish garden suburbs from suburbia is the fact that you had everything in one place. So it was very much about being self-contained. So you'd have the residential areas, um, but you also have, have all the social amenities, so you'd have your, your schools, uh, libraries, um, religious buildings, uh, there'll be a certain number of shops, there would be um, local transport, um, and everything would be in walking distance, but also you'd have local industry as well, so you wouldn't have to commute elsewhere. Somewhere like Hillfields, maybe not so much now, but there was a, a business there called uh, Robinson's, 
which were one of the biggest employers at that time in the, in the city, probably producing cardboard boxes and paper bags and things like that. And uh, they were they were a fairly major employer. And I, I believe that there were more than 20 other small factories just in the hill fields and fish ponds area. So all your employment would have been on your doorstep. What separates Hillfields from, would you say, other garden suburbs? Does it have any special features or unusual quirks to it? I think it was interesting because it was the first estate in Bristol, actually one of the first ones in the country to be built on garden suburbs principles. So it was very much influenced by something called the, the Tudor Waters um, report that uh, came out in 19, at, the, at the end of the war. Homes for Heroes is probably one of the most famous um, slogans of social history. So I think Lloyd George actually said a country fit for heroes to live in or something like that, but it got burnished up. It's a bit more pithy and catchy, Homes for Heroes. So that was the slogan that came out of the First World War. So so what happened with Hillfields was that that was almost like a test case for uh, moving this into suddenly you get funding for, you get municipal funding for, for social housing. And, um, but interestingly, they, what they did was they, they invited lots and lots of local architects and designers. And it's interesting, I just noticed when I was just looking back over this, Marcus, over the last, I think this week, the, the 5th and the 6th of June was when they had this uh, event um, organised by an organisation called the uh, Interallied Housing and Town Planning Congress and people from across the, the country and there were about 500 delegates and actually from other parts of the world would have come to Bristol and they would have looked at all the basically show homes all in one one area of, uh, of Hillfields and then some of those designs were taken and developed elsewhere some of them really only stayed in Hillfields so you had different designers there was uh, Benjamin Wakefield and Gray and Watkins there was a, a company called uh, Heathman Blacker. Blacker referred to Evelyn Dew Blacker, who was the uh, the first qualified architect, uh, female architect in Bristol. What type of people moved moved in to these houses initially? There was a lot of slum clearance at the time, but I don't think they were really from the slums. I think you had to be fairly solvent. So I think they were sort of working working class people with a reasonable income. So what, what happened when that report was done, there, there was some fund, there was central funding for social housing, which was a really new thing, but there was a lot of pressure for servicemen demobilized after the war coming back and housing was a really quite an incendiary issue in many ways. There was huge rent strikes in, in Glasgow. The German revolution hadn't been, uh, had been very, was, was still ongoing actually in Germany. So that was, uh, that was kind of, slightly concerned the authorities so so there was suddenly there was central funding for for housing but i believe that a lot of them were actually uh, you know we, we talk about homes for heroes they were actually servicemen and service families who moved into those houses it was quite a high percentage in the early 1920s i believe and i've also read that there were quite a lot of belgian service families had moved in who'd sort of escaped from belgium and as refugees and uh, and and lived on that estate now, did these garden suburbs live up to their expectations over the decades and over the years? I think what's quite interesting now, so I, obviously during lockdown, I, uh, I've been going on various um, trips around Bristol on my bike or walking around. And uh, I, I was thinking, actually, the hillfields, obviously, those, those, all of those garden suburbs were built before cars were written. Nobody really owned cars before the... Uh, the Second World War. In fact, a lot of working class communities wouldn't have had mass car ownership until probably the 1950s, 1960s. So they would have all 
they would have looked quite different. They would have all had it, had edges around them. Everybody had a uh, an apple tree or a pear tree kind of came with the with the house. So they, they would have been much quieter places. And the the idea was that the uh, you don't really get that now because a lot of those have been cut down. Obviously, to there was no parking spaces, so people have taken their taken the hedges out to put the cars in the front gardens and things like that. It's as close as it would have been to what it was would have been like in the interwar period, because suddenly you can hear bird song. One thing I noticed that a lot of the children have chalked up NHS, but they've also chalked up little um, hopscotch all over the paths and things like that. So suddenly you've got kids playing on the streets again. That's probably the first time it's been like that for half a century, I would imagine, which is quite interesting. <laughs> That's such a great thought that, yeah, we've gone back in time in many ways. Yeah. I guess what I want to get to more is that where do you see garden suburbs now? Because a number of the places now have like empty shops and the, 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 the labour, the factories have moved elsewhere. To ask about the whole uh, garden suburbs project is, is, is can you socially, socially engineer that, that sense of community? So I think there were, you know, there, there are strong communities and there always have been strong communities there. Over time, they've become more places that people will commute from, but then they're quite isolated from other things going on in the city very often. Um, as you say, the, the, the vision of having employment and amenities and residential areas all together was the whole reason and the vision behind garden suburbs. Once you've taken out those ingredients, then actually the whole, you're just left with lots of houses that are in slight, you know, they're out of the city centre, they might be up on a hill somewhere, We've had spending cuts to public transport, so actually they can be quite diff- obviously quite difficult places to live in now. Do you know much about what was there before the uh, housing estate of Hillfields was built? It was interesting that that whole area was part of what was called the Kingswood Forest. So that would have extended, obviously, from Kingswood, as the name suggests, but over kind of vast tracts of what would be sort of suburban Bristol now. So it would have been very much a hunting area for the for the monarchy when they were in the area. So most famously, Wicked King John um, had his hunting lodge in, that's where Lodge Causeway takes its name from, I believe. That, that would have been the case. So when we talk about forest, it was that means it was under royal jurisdiction. It had particular jurisdiction, and it had it was it was used for hunting. So it doesn't necessarily mean it would have been all covered with trees in the way that we think of a forest today. It was common land, and it was enclosed in the 1780s. So I think probably quite interesting that these is a little rural location. Two things hit it and gave it a massive shock. One was being enclosed. So it ceased to become common land. The land was enclosed by the by the Duke of Beaufort in the in the late 18th century, and in the late 19th century, the railways came. So there's stations at Fish Ponds, and at Staple Hill, which were closed during the beaching cuts in the 1960s. But that would have had a uh, impact as well. So a slightly quiet, rural, quite feudal situation I think obviously would have changed quite quickly so the Bristol Corporation when they bought that land they bought that land from the Duke of Beaufort at the in at the end of the First World War so that those were the sort of things that really changed the area but I think probably for centuries before that it was there were a few cottages living there and really very very rural area I think it would have been part of the would have been presided over actually by the Vassal family who were based at what's now a ruin, but at uh, Oldbury Court in Fishponds would have would have been, I suspect, that 
the Duke of Beaufort didn't owned it but didn't visit very often, but they would have been, they would have kept an eye on the locals and made sure they were all behaving themselves in the area and going to church and such likes. So what does Hillfields mean to me? I had a girlfriend who lived in Hillfields. I remember driving in my small yellow Fiat Punto to see her. There is the big field with a BMX pump track. Yes, very cool. And rest in peace to young former Hillfields resident, Siobhan Wilson. He was brutally taken away from us in 2009. Here is the former Lord Mayor of Bristol, Graham Robertson, interviewed in 1999 who grew up in the area. Well, I was born in Hillfields, um, <clears throat> and, and I'm delighted that I still represent Hillfields to this day. Not that there's anything magic about that, but it's nice to uh, represent the area we were born in. I, I genuinely feel that. Uh, I had a, a, a wonderful uh, childhood, I must admit, in, in Hillfields. It was the first council estate uh, built in this city. And um, and so it was a, a place which was swathed with council houses. And of course, I came up in a era where uh, most people that lived on those areas, there was a great leveller. Uh, there weren't people with lots of money and people basically were all on the same sort of, of wages. I think the, the way uh, one I've looked at it, particularly uh, back in time, is that uh, the poorer families, of course, were the families that had... Uh, six, seven, eight, nine children, as against those that had one or two. That, that created, if you like, the poor of the area, as against wages. So well, we were lucky, we only had the two of us, a, a sister, and um, I suppose we were reasonably well off, because father had a job of work. Uh, and so I count myself as being privileged within that. I must say my father, God bless him, was a, a member of the Conservative Party. And uh, I remember as I got older and started to argue politics with him, and I would remind him that, of course, you know, in the days when he was thinking of, you know, in the 30s, when he would remind me he could go out and buy a suit for less than five shillings, have a suitcase to take it away, and a pair of shoes thrown in. I said, well, that was marvellous if you could afford it. But there must have been thousands of people out there who could never afford that. So I had, a, if you like, a, a, quite a privileged background from that, that point of view. And the fact that uh, my father was a great gardener I and mean, we were self-sufficient in, in food stuff in that way. Uh, I suspect that's what made me become a gardener is at a very early age. I followed his footsteps, at least in that way, if nothing else. And so, as I said, I went into the trade union movement and eventually, obviously, one percolates in towards politics. And uh, it was obvious I was going to become a member of the Labour Party. I was privileged to be elected to uh, the City Council in 1961 for Windmill Hill. Again, I was privileged when I came on to the City Council, as was a norm in those days. Uh, when you first came on, you, you obviously went on some of the lesser committees, like the Cemeteries Committee or, uh, or, or the Allotments Committee, which I didn't mind. I was a, an allotment holder, and I loved that. But you very rarely went on to what I call the, the more high-powered committees. I was very lucky I got onto the Housing Committee the, the first year I was on council. I thoroughly enjoyed my time on housing. We had some very good chairs of housing in those days. Uh, Bill Waring must have been just about my first chair of housing. A man who really understood housing, and from a social point of view, besides everything else. 
But the council in those days, one has to appreciate that there am I, you know, 35 years of age, and we are talking of people of mature years, great characters. With all what people say about local authorities, in some of it is true, of course, bound to be. But I think if people could only realise the amount of time and the effort and the work done by people years ago and even still so today, who've got great dedication, a great love for this city, and if you've got a love for the city, you've got a love for the people who work and live within it. So I reminisce about these old characters. And they all say, well, of course, it's a sign of getting old that you don't think there are any great characters left on the city council. But I, I must say, I don't think there are to the degree. But I think many people fear, I don't understand that members of council did then and still have today have a job of work. And so if you're out working, whether it's from seven in the morning till five at night. Maybe your employer, and many employers were very good, would give you time off during the way the day to, in fact, attend meetings. And then, of course, uh, you had a home life where you should have, and uh, you still had to do your council work and your ward work and your constituency work uh, in the time when most people would be using it for leisure activities. And it it does, in many cases, put a huge strain upon families and relationships and things like that. Unless, of course, uh, you're very lucky and you've got a wife, or it might be today a partner, which is most sympathetic to what you're doing, and uh, and you get by. Now, in, in our last interview, um, at the beginning we were talking about the Hillfields estate where you were, were brought up in the, uh, in the late 20s. And I'd be quite interested in revisiting that. To, to try and get an idea of the, the people who lived on the estate and maybe the sorts of jobs that they actually did because um, I believe I remember what you were saying your father actually commuted into yeah. the, to, to the centre to work I mean how would you describe if you like the the work pattern of what people actually did who would have lived in Hillfields at that time from, from your reminiscences well I, I think there were various work patterns as we would see today uh, except many people did commute into the centre of the city to uh, work in fact uh, the neighbour across the road a fellow called Harris actually went to Avonmouth every day to work and I remember my father would leave home six o'clock in the morning and he would either walk up to uh, Staple Hill to catch the tram down or to uh, Staple Hill station and catch the train into St Phillips Junction or uh, the halt which was there uh, and, and they wouldn't arrive back home till half past six, seven o'clock at night. And uh, just imagine the journey in those days to Avermouth when one had to get uh, from where we lived in Hillfields down to Lawrence Hill Station and, and then catch the train down, of course. By and large, uh, Hillfields was uh, very lucky in many respects in those days because there was a wealth of industry there. An absolute ma amazing amount of industry. Just off the top of my head, the big ESNA Robinsons complex there. Weaver's Chocolate had had a, a, a very big factory there. Parnell's, the shop fitters, had a very. There were several jam factories around. Noose, who uh, were furniture manufacturers, had a very big complex there. So there was a wealth of industry. And of course, just a uh, hundred yards uh, up the road into Sangwa, there was a massive boot and shoe industry there. So I would suspect that most people that lived in and around the Hillfields area actually worked roughly within their community. The numbers which moved out of the community to, to work, as my father did in so, would have been few and far between. In fact, I could almost tell you where the 12 families worked in Willow Grove, where I was born. Uh, <laughs> 
Jim Gray, as I call him, wonderful man, a, a mountain of a man. Well, General John worked for uh, the railway, for GWR, worked at Manglettsville, uh, which really is a stone's throw away from Hillfields. Uh, as I said, father worked it in the centre of the city. Next door was a man called Tucker, who worked for the gas works uh, down at Eastville, you know, in... Um, in the art of manufacturing gas in those days. We were well served because uh, we always had coke to burn on the fire brought home by uh, Mr. Tucker. Uh, the fellow, again, the next one up was a man called Gain who was a conductor on the buses. Then we had a family in the next house called Weaver. Uh, he actually worked in what we would call today the asylum. And I always remember him. He um, came home one night. My father was quite a character, and uh, Weaver had a black eye. And the father said to him, "How did you get that, Stan?" He said, "Well, he said I was whistling. Whether this is ever true, mine, I was whistling the song Two Lovely Black Eyes.'" And he said, "Someone put one on me in the institution there. Whether that's true, I should never know. But that was the story that went. But he worked there. We always said he works in the lunatic asylum." Appreciate we were boys then and didn't really understand what all those things were really about. So one could go on. We had another man then uh, called Bauer who lived in the, the next house. He didn't work. He was, in fact, uh, uh, disabled uh, from the First World War. Uh, Elson lived in a, another house next door. He worked uh, in an office in Fishpond. I can't quite remember where. Rogers worked for Parnas, who was the shop fitter. The next house was a man called Jones, who was a retired uh, army officer. I put it this way, looking back in my why he ever lived in Willow Grove, I'll never know. He was a perfect gentleman. In fact, uh, he had gentleman's ideals as well. Uh, you would always see him going out with his, his gun shooting rabbits with his dog, I think, was called Barney. And uh, very often, after he'd uh, shot a few rabbits, uh, Father uh, uh, was sent over a rabbit for the table. Wiles lived was uh, uh, had a very large family, about eight of them in family. He, in fact, was a tram driver. Uh, Jim Harris uh, worked on the Avonmouth docks. And the next one, of course, who was the last one in the street, was a man called Williams, who was a, a first-class carpenter. In fact, when the Coulson Hall was burnt down, he, in fact, was responsible for choosing the timber to cut for veneers, to, in fact, re-veneer, and to put all the panels right in the Coulson Hall. So in that community there, my father of 12 people, was the only one who actually worked outside of Hillfields. All the rest of them were employed within, within the Hillfields uh, area. Now, interestingly, actually, one of the other factories that was near there would have been the um, Bristol Pottery, which oh, yes. employed a lot yes. of women. Oh, yes. And I wonder, from your knowledge, I mean, was it common for women to go out to work who lived on Willow? No, no, it, it was not. I mean, mostly, as, uh, as was the thing there, it were single women which, which went out to work. You would find the odd ones. Many of them took in washing and things like that, I must say, particularly from some of the houses which were uh, where, where people there had more money than uh, they had, of course. But, uh, as you said... The old pottery down in uh, in, in the Causeway, which uh, was a very good pottery in actual fact, did employ a, a huge number of women there. But I would suggest most of them were mainly single people or people who were widows from the First World War and things like that. For this episode, I'd like to thank Bruce Guthrie, Steve Paul, and Kieran Costello. This podcast has been brought to you by BCFM, Bristol's first community radio station, in partnership with Bristol 24-7,
Bristol Museums, Bristol Archives and the University of the West of England. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Cheers, mate. Bye.